Hello, and welcome back to Things Are Going Great For Me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is Jay Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. Welcome back. If you're new here, make yourself at home, relax, because I want you all to enjoy yourselves. Get out the decaf, have a Sanka, whatever that is, put on your favorite sweatshirt, and get comfortable. On each episode of this series, you'll hear from huge movie stars, big TV stars, and even some bright, shining Broadway stars, as well as second-guest interviews with exciting up-and-coming comics and actors and established producers, authors, and writers. We banked all the episodes, which also makes this series a time capsule of events that occurred throughout an historic summer. You can follow me, your host, at Deering on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow our show handles on Twitter and Instagram at Things Are Going Great For Me. There you'll find our link tree that has links for our email list and Patreon. On our Patreon, you'll find bonus RSS feed interview coverage from some of our guests, including further insights about the future of the entertainment business, plus exclusive photos and videos, some truly funny moments that happened with our guests during technical difficulties, and more. Much more. So much more. Here comes the rate and subscribe part, and I don't want this to become rote, but here's the thing. We're doing this as a limited season until you demand more. So if you like any of what you hear today, do us a big kindness. Subscribe to the show. Leave us a nice comment. Give us those five stars wherever you're getting your podcast from today. Hey, Apple Podcast peeps. We see you, Spotify folks. Hey now, Stitcher fam. What's up, you freaky pocket casts, cats? Hey, breaker brethren and sistren. Welcome, radio public people. Hello, you overcast outroverts. We love you all equally, and we hope you love what you hear, and we want to keep bringing you new episodes of this show. And by the way, we're thrilled to be sponsored for this limited series by Icelandic Glacial, the purest tasting water on Earth, sourced from the legendary Ulfus Spring in Iceland, naturally filtered through ancient lava rock, and certified carbon neutral for both product and operation. You are what you drink. Be a force of nature. Icelandic Glacial, natural spring water, sourced from Iceland. Available on Amazon, IcelandicGlacial.com, and a retailer near you. Today's guest is Baron Vaughn, star of Grace and Frankie on Netflix and Comedy Central's Corporate. We talk about some personal shared experience seeking out and connecting with a birth parent, the American education system, the way in which fear and anxiety can be a necessary part of the artistic process, breaking out of the boxes of Hollywood's racial stereotypes, and putting a tape together for Saturday Night Live. Baron's one of the funniest and one of the quickest comedic talents in the world. He's also one of the most brilliant people I've ever known. I'll be speaking with him in a few minutes. And a little bit later, you'll also get my conversation with Liz Glazer, one of the hardest working and funniest comedians I know. Also one of the most empathic people I've ever met. Liz and I talk about doing comedy during a pandemic. We talk about our respective relationships to our different faiths. Also her magical story of being a magnet for tossed away fortune cookie fortunes. Her engagement to her rabbi. By the way, she's now married, and I was graciously invited to her lovely Zoom wedding. Anyways, stick around. You're not going to want to miss it. Joining me again today is my producer and co-host, Winston Carter. So today is a comedian-heavy episode of Things Are Going Great Mm -hmm. For Me. We have at least two more comedians on this first season of our show. I want to have more comedians on. Um, I think what works so well about having comedians on a podcast is that they tend to come ready with stories to tell. Funny stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas actors, like you kind of have to uncover those stories in conversation. Um, sometimes actors tend to do that thing you hear, like when an athlete uh, is sort of like staying on team message, like, you know, it was a group effort or whatever. Yeah. I think like the actor version is like, I'm just so lucky to be working sort of a thing. Yeah, I don't, Willem Dafoe, I don't want to hear about how everyone's great. I want to know <laughs> about if you were uncomfortable. 
Right. I feel like Willem Dafoe is like the worst example because oh my like god, he, I would love like, to get Willem Dafoe on here. Yeah. I think I'm a little bit proud that I think ultimately I got people to say the real shit on here. Yeah. I think so. I think that's always the goal. Uh, so I discovered performing comedy at around the same age that Baron did. Uh, when I was 20 years old, I took a stand-up class with the Daily Show comedian uh, Louis Black. And then I started doing my first open mics at the comedy store in New York. Apparently, Baron heard about this same Louis Black class from another guy we, we both know. Uh, based off what that guy said, his name is Leo. What he said to Baron about the class, Baron made a decision to just start doing stand up. Um, now Baron did like the real work, which is to go on the road touring colleges as a comedian. I moved out to LA to try to get a TV agent and I started taking UCB classes instead for a few years. And I, to be honest, I think that was a mistake because, um, for me personally, because I think to do improv, huh? You and everyone. You and, you and <laughs> well, tens no, of that's, thousands of people. <laughs> well, because to do improv takes a certain kind of brain that I really don't have. Like, it's the writing oh, okay. the sitcom three-act structure on your feet with six strangers part. I get, like, a kind of intellectual vertigo sometimes doing it. You, you are good oh, at that's it. That's fair. You're very good at it. Uh, I'm okay at it. Uh, yeah. it's You have to be really, really uh, egocentric. And willing to be like, my idea's great. Do you miss doing it right now? Or have you done any of these, like, Zoom uh, improv shows? I've done a Zoom... Oh, you did do one. You did one... Did you do a two-hander with someone from the UK? Yeah, I did one with a woman named Francesca Reed. Uh, She's amazing. She's someone I met when I was in London doing improv. Yeah, we did uh, for Hoopla, which is the UK's, uh, like, London's, I think, only, like, improv-exclusive theater. They do, like... They're like a UCB of the UK. Cool. Yeah, but I did one. It was fun. Um, I don't miss it as much as I thought I would. I miss performing a little bit. I'm probably a little insufferable to see in person right now because I'm trying to make people laugh so hard. Uh, but I don't miss like uh, practicing or going to weird shows if there's like five people. Like I don't. I thought I'd miss it much more than I did. Um. Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't like. I miss seeing the people I would see at stuff like that. But uh, what I think of, like, actually sitting through a show and wait, and then being nervous for a show that I know is completely non consequential, uh, I don't miss that. I just am like, not having that in my life for the past six months has been fine. I get, I have had pangs where, and we talk about this with both our guests today, with both Baron and Liz. Like, I've had pangs of missing doing stand up because. There is something very, there's something very like, God, there's something communal about the solo performance of stand up where Mm -hmm. when you're there with other stand ups who each person is sort of bringing their own show to that microphone. It's so simple. It's just the microphone of the stage and what they have Mm -hmm. to say. I miss uh, being in a room. I don't care how many people are there. So long as like the comics are interesting. That's the most important thing to me. Um, I, I do miss that. I don't miss it all. What I don't miss is like trying to get on five shows a week, like emailing everybody and, and hoping that, you know, you can get booked on a, at a shitty little spot to do your stuff. Um, but I do miss, you know, when it's easy, when somebody says like, Hey, or if in those moments when someone reaches out and says like, Hey, do you want to do my show? Like that? I miss that so much. I don't know, man. I It's fun. Comedy's great. I think this is a good reset for I for yeah. me, I've viewed this very much as like like I'm working on writing more and doing like 
I'm like, oh, all the shit that I moved to LA to do that I haven't done for five years because I got obsessed with this performance aspect of it. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, this is like maybe a reset I needed. I hate why it's happening. and I hate that we're all stuck inside. But uh, I'm trying to make the best out of it. But like, okay, well, if I'm forced to be in, what are the things I can do that don't involve, you know, going to a black box theater at 9 p.m. one night a week? At 10, 10 p.m. 11 p.m. Oh, God. Dude, I don't do 11 p.m. shows, man. I don't do them anymore. When you got Especially the two kids and you're t- you have to tell your spouse, like, sorry, I have a, I have a show at 11 p.m. And, like, the, the eye rolls are nightmare. just eye rolls it's, for days. It's not the, like, anything after 10. It's not even that it's like, oh, the show's done at 11. But then it's a 15-minute to 20-minute drive home. It's a faster than normal drive home. That's nice. Sure. But then you get yeah. home. And then there's, like, the de- I need to decompress after I've been at a show. So then I'm, like, chilling for a minute. And then all of a sudden it's 1 a.m. Yeah. You got to be up at like 6 and it's the worst. It's yeah. the worst. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks, you've been very patient with us. <laughs> Without further ado, here now is the professor of comedy himself, mm-hmm. Mr. Baron Vaughn. Okay, so knowing what we know at this point, do you think we are going back to work anytime soon? You mean people in entertainment? Yeah. Who the hell knows, man? I mean, obviously everyone is itching to to go back to some sense of normalcy. I don't think there is a sense of normalcy anymore. I think this this is a this is an event that completely changes the consciousness and the flow and the structure of a culture. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's historical precedent for stuff like this, where it's like this plague descends upon an empire or a kingdom, and it just, because it's it's random, because it's like a, a weather system, you don't know who's going to get affected and how and what kinds of you know things are going to be left to be picked back up and who's going to be left to pick these things back up. Because those things are all un- unanswered questions, and now you know ever, there's all these states trying to open up their economies, which personally I think is just going to make a buttload of people sick. Right. You know, I think that like the people who are protesting, let us go back to work, are going to get sick, and it's like, wow, that's it, it's there. It's like a weird self fulfilling prophecy. I don't know. We're we're going to see what the hell's going to happen. But that said, like. It's hard. We work in an industry that, first of all, it's not run that well. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, a set is a is a is a madman's paradise. It's just a bunch of people in an enclosed giant space, all upon each other. Right. Like, for what are they going to do? Unpredictable about... amount of time a day. Even when they plan on a twelve-hour day, yeah. nobody actually knows what the hell's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, so, is anyone going to do like a love scene or anything? Like. How is that? How's That's what it, I'm saying. Kissing, holding hands. Like, are, if, if people said to you, like, we're going to work is going to start in August. Are you going to set in August? Well, for me, like Grace and Frankie, like we have four people that are in their damn, you know, they're octogenarians. Right. You know what I mean? Like they're in their 70s and 80s. They're a high risk population. You know, uh, I'm black. Apparently, I'm a high risk population. My wife has right. asthma. You know, she's a high risk population. So it's kind of like there's a lot of different factors at work. I would not want to get one of I would not want to get Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, Martin Sheen, Sam Waterston sick. 
You know what I'm saying? And I wouldn't want to. That would be a be heck a of a legacy to them. Be, them coming down with the coronavirus and it shutting everything down. So it's kind of like I know that a lot of producers, at least, are very concerned about the safety of their cast and crew, how they're going to figure it out. I've seen I've seen some people be like, here's what we could possibly do. And of course, there, there's a lot of things where it's like, you haven't thought about this. You know, like there's simple things like clearly there's not going to be crafty anymore. You know, like right. clearly I saw something about like people who build sets like production designers and painters and, and carpenters. Like no one's sharing tools and paintbrushes. Like everyone's got to bring their own tools. Like you can't just pick up the, the, the saw that was there. You got to bring your own saw and everyone's got to never share all these tools and stuff. Just stuff that has been normal and taken for granted and is part of the rhythm of how sets work. You know, we have to rethink all that. And and especially when it's all about like trying to somehow it's all we're losing time. We got to save time. We got to move as fast as possible. And everything takes forever. We're always behind and we're always hemorrhaging money. So <laughs> we'll see in a, in a system that works like that when it's normal. We'll see how they'll they'll make it work in an extraordinary circumstance. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, I'm going to try my best to give you an opportunity to talk about some things that you haven't talked about yet. Great. I did listen to you were on Andy Richter's recent uh, your uh, his podcast, which I think you did in maybe September of last year. I tried to get myself yeah. up to, up to date. I do want to dive into your origin story again, because you and I both have interesting origin stories. You said on Andy's show that there was some controversy around your birth and there was some controversy around my birth. So I thought we should talk about that a little bit and compare some notes. <laughs> so you, you're curious as to what the controversy was. Yeah, sure. Birth. The controversy was the fact of my birth. My mom was 19. My dad was 21. They were both in college. Um, a lot of I made a documentary for the Fusion Channel called Fatherless. If yeah. anyone out there has Amazon Prime, you can see Fatherless. Uh, it's 42 minutes because it was like an hour TV doc, you know. So there's no commercials on a streaming service, so they cut out the commercials. 42 minutes. Learn about me if you want. Hey. Yeah. Um, so you met with your. You met with a birth parent. I did the same thing. I'm adopted. And, mm. But you made yours a limited television event. <laughs> like, yeah, just a one-episode thing. A limited series, I should say. Yeah, which I watched, and I really, really loved. It was very moving oh, to thanks. me. I had I went through the same, in, or at least a, a similar kind of experience. Mm -hmm. um, so one of my questions is, uh, how are you doing now with that relationship? You know, it's still new. It's still weird for me because I'm like, he's my father, my biological father, but he's not like a guy I know. He's still a stranger as far as I'm concerned. That's so, right. I know. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're we're a couple steps, you know, on the other side of how's the weather and what we talk about. But, you know, deep stuff, because still when it comes down to it, he's an old straight black dude. So it's like 15 minutes of conversation is as much as he has. So it's like I'm always getting scared to talk to him. And he's like, all right, 15 minutes um, out of things to say. So I'm like, oh, cool. You know, I can I can talk to him. And and then we just, you know, we just want to know that we're alive and how each other's doing. And one day, hopefully, we'll be able to talk about some of this other stuff. I'm still making my peace with it. I'm still realizing what happened. But in general, it's been a positive experience. 
Okay, well, that's great. That's great to hear. I was gobsmacked when I met him, though. I literally was like, I remember so overwhelmed. Yeah, it was in, it was weird. It was weird to see you like that and and beautiful. Um, <laughs> Thanks to see you coming into contact with um, an element of your life that you you had no game plan for, like in the actual moment, which is how it was for me. So I met my mother, my uh, Irish uh, birth mother, in a hotel in Dublin. And we had afternoon tea and she came up to our hotel room and uh, the guy who brought the tea in was she was sort of right behind him. So I kind of like as I was bringing in the afternoon tea, I kind of looked down and could see the stockinged feet of my of my mother. He brought he brought in the tea. I quickly tipped that guy and let him out of there. And then the door closed and then a, a minute or not a minute, but a moment went by and then I got another knock on the door and then we. Is we started the meeting that that way? Wow! Because it was it would have been weird if she had sort of come in. She waited. It seemed like she was waiting for him to leave. Which which knowing her now, I'm sure that's what she was doing. And then Absolutely. she sat down. We were we were sitting there. The first thing that she one of the first things I remember her saying is, "This is weird." <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she's quite talkative. Um, oh, good. We had a correspondence via letters first, which was very romantic and old Written fashioned. Letters? Mm-hmm. I don't mean romantic wax, in a in a creepy wax way. Wax seals and all that stuff. Yeah, we. I mean, well, I think they were they were handwritten notes. Yeah, and she wow. she she was fascinating in the sense that she was interested in stuff that like my adoptive folks really aren't that much. Like she's she's a big she watches a lot of good. Prestige kind of television, which my my folks don't really care about as much, but like uh-huh. she she talked. I remember in early letters we were talking about things like The West Wing came up, and I was like, oh my gosh! I was like, this is a person I can talk to. And then on my father's side, my my dad is Jordanian, um, and my mother was working uh, as a as a midwife in Jordan when I was conceived uh, there, and then um, left that country. Um, and put me up for adoption, and I was born in Westminster, London, and adopted by a couple of folks from Boston, Massachusetts. That's my story. <laughs> Incredible. As, as as you do. What a story. I think it sounds like you and I did this around the same time. Where it's funny because like you kind of got your family unit going. Yeah. And you're like, now I'm gonna fuck it all up <laughs> with with doing this insane thing. Absolutely, because. I mean, that's the thing about fear is that, uh, you know, I hate to quote, quote FDR, but the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That's right. Which is an interesting thing because it's, you know, it's an interesting idea because it's just kind of like, we don't actually fear the thing. You know what I mean? The antici- the thing we actually are, it's unknown. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's very unlikely that the worst possible situation is going to happen, but the idea of yeah. I have no idea how this is going to go, what this person's going to be like, if I want to stay in touch, all these kinds of things that can be enough to make a person be like, you know what, I'm not going to touch it. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously there could be a lot of other feelings, you know, depending on what the story is. But like, you know, I think it's especially just as an artist, you have to face your fears, I guess, in some sort of way and to come up with literally anything. Um, it doesn't mean that's different than dwelling. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because sometimes you face your fear and you realize you're not ready to face your fear. And sometimes that can create 
art, you know. Do you or think stuff like that, that like now you've talked a little bit about your anxiety and your and, and depression, which are both things that I have too, and everybody deals with these things di- differently. But yeah. in that thing that you're talking about with confronting fear, do you think that I don't think it's necessarily it's the reason all the time that you want to be exposed to your anxiety all the time unless you've made a decision about that. But do you feel at this point having, you know, you're a stand up comedian, you know what it is to get up and be like and let the world judge you. Um, Do you feel a little bit addicted to that feeling now of anxiety of putting yourself into that situation? Is that is that something that you is that has that become its own comfort in a way at this point? Well, you know, apologies if I misspeak, but, you know, there's an argument to be made that the feeling of anxiety is an addiction. There's an argument to be made that, you know, every emotion that we have is a a biochemical reaction in our brains. So every emotion is literally a, a very specific drug cocktail. And anytime that you have a certain feeling that you go to over and over and over again, whether it's positive or bad, um, you know, that's the feeling that feels like home. That's the feeling that feels familiarity, mm. uh, where you feel familiarity, where you feel like yourself. And if it's a, if it's like an, an anxiousness or stress or an anxiety, you know, that can be very toxic. But yeah, yeah, having anxiety is being addicted, I guess, to the feeling of worry, to being in a state of panic and a state of, of having to keep your you know, your eyes open and your your, you know, your ears sort of like to the ground just to kind of see what may or may not be coming at you, to constantly be in some state of being preoccupied, to just busy. Your mind is always spinning. You know, sometimes I say that anxiety is is our creative impulse that we have turned into a bat to punish ourselves with because anxiety is just a really it's a toxic form of storytelling. You know, it's like if you put all your anxieties into a script, people go like, well, that's a dynamic story. Right. You know, but instead, it's the thing that we say to ourselves that that prevents us from, you know, taking a step, you know, from getting out of bed or from climbing a mountain or from speaking feelings to a person we might have feelings for or to, you know, standing up for yourself or to saying no to somebody. You know, we tell this story to ourselves to prevent ourselves from growing Hmm. and then at the same time worry about the stagnant growth that we're having at the same time so all that mixed together becomes anxiety having an awareness of the anxiety that it that it's almost like a demon that runs you you know what i mean like where, where it's like oh my anxiety is making this decision not me um it takes a while and it still takes me a lot of time i i think i'm at the place where i'm aware of the difference between me and my anxiety, but it is me. So it's like, it just feels like I'm having a reaction, but sometimes I can go, wait, this is coming from that place. This is coming from the place that makes me just want to be busy with being worried instead of being, it's not useful. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, and that's an interesting way of putting it. That stand up is sort of like, I'm putting myself in an anxious situation. I, I, you know, I think that's a really, that's a really interesting observation about, what it means to be a stand-up. And and as far as I can tell, you know, all the stand-ups that don't have the opportunity to go to a club and make a group of strangers laugh are going crazy. Right yeah. Now. You I'm know, hearing that. They're, yeah. They're doing shows, but it's not the same as having that immediate feedback 
What is a laugh but somebody involuntarily going, I love you. That's what a laugh is, is a bunch of strangers going, I love you. That's what any comedian is, is receiving. Even if they didn't go looking for it, then they'd start to get used to it. Even if they're not a, a person who needs that, then at some point you still become a person who needs that because it just feels good. It feels yeah. good to have that power where you can make someone laugh. Well, also, you've talked a little bit about the idea of being unwanted, which is something that adopted folks feel, I think, too. But what we actually what we have is a double thing, which is like we feel unwanted, but we also feel special because we were chosen, which is a thing mm -hmm. that S Steve Jobs experienced as a kid. Some, you know, when he he has the same background that I do, he's half Middle Eastern right. and half white. And he some kid in his neighborhood was like, so if you're adopted, does that mean that your birth parents didn't want you? And he right. ran home crying and his mother was like, no, 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 no. You're special. We chose you. So my question for you is, do you have the I'm special part? Definitely not. Definitely not. Um, it was never something that was instilled in me, at least not at home. I guess I kind of got it at school um, hmm. from whether it be kids that thought I was funny or smart or whether it be a teacher kind of recognizing that. I spoke differently, you know, or, mm. you know, I had interesting things to say about what was going on in class, you know, teachers, there's there always a handful of teachers that took an interest in me, you know, that, that pushed me in, in directions that luckily, um, were beneficial. That's why I go like, well, the education system's weird because the biggest education I got in school were the teachers who gave me things that were beyond the curriculum. Like clearly the curriculum was okay, but like, you know what? You read this book. You know what? You do you do this equation. You know what? You read this play or hmm. you know, just kind of like taking and clearly this kid is hungry for knowledge and what I'm teaching in school, you know, any teacher actually I think, you know, except for of course the, the pieces of shit uh, of which there are many any teacher wants to actually teach and the educational system gets in the way <laughs> of teachers being able to teach. It's just like you and me, we want to make people laugh. We want to make content. We want to write. We want to direct. The industry's in our way. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? You're right. We, you know, I remember a, a friend of mine who's a comedian will re remain unnamed, um, was talking about, uh, at the time her wife was in this movie, and they were playing with her schedule because it was shot in a different city. And, you know, you know how sets are. It's like, we need you. No, we don't need you. It's mm, like, oh, yeah. okay, can I, can I fly home? Yes, you can get a ticket and go fly home. Okay, cool. As soon as she's about to hit buy, you know, like, whatever we website she was on, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, actually, we're redoing the schedule. We might need you to – it was right. just like they were playing with her about that, right? Right. And my friend was like, wow, I could just never be an actor. Um, this just sounds like it's so hard. And I'm like, literally nothing that is happening to your wife has to do with acting. Like, that's all production stuff. You know, like, right. none of us were like, ooh, I can't wait until they dick around with whether or not I can fly home. None of us signed up for this for that. No. We signed up to tell jokes and to tell stories and to make pictures but the industry is in our way. I feel like there's a lot of teachers that signed up to teach, but curriculums and what a superintendent and what textbooks they got assigned are in the way of being able to actually see that spark, you know, in a child where they they've learned something. And I, I had a handful of teachers that 
saw that in me, and those are the people that made me feel special. I heard a story. Is this true that you helped with the delivery of one of your kids? <laughs> yeah, I mean, helped is an understatement. Uh, I delivered the child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, to try to keep it as succinct as possible, you know, the the baby, the 10-month-old is the second child, right? So my wife, I think, is as true as of many women who have a child. Um, when it's their first time, they don't know what the hell's going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, it's literally never happened to them. Sure, there's books and videos and classes to prepare you to get you – you know, acquainted with what's going to happen to your body, but there's no way to anticipate how you're going to feel about it until it's happening. So our, we went to this, you know, we were actually going to a, a place that's like a birthing center that was run by a midwife who's a very interesting, wise, smart woman. Um, and that was our plan is to have the baby there. But when it was time for the first child to be born, you know, it was such an intense experience that my wife was like, you know what? Uh, I'm going to need that epidural. So we ended up going to a hospital right. sure. and she got an epidural. Yeah. Therefore she didn't really feel what happened. Right. It numbs you. Right. So with the second baby, um, in general, when women have another child, it always happens faster. They say it always happens faster. That's right. It, yeah. Um, it's almost like they're, you know, there's a, there's a curriculum that their body has now mm, has. That's a good way of a putting handout it. handout that goes around to the cells like, uh, hey, we had a baby. So next time, uh, everybody pay extra attention to uh, Section 8A, uh, which is a uh, squeeze like a motherfucker. Okay, everybody with me? All right. On three. One, two, three. Baby! You know, whatever. Yeah. I whatever like that it's a New York crew. has to give itself. Yeah. <laughs> in the you know old school New York construction worker act. It's the guys. It's the guys from Ghostbusters. The characters that yeah, they get like, into when they're when they're pretending to be doing work on the hey, road. Why you guys got a nuclear reacting in basement? <laughs> That's not code. Right. Whatever they say in Ghostbusters. That's not up to gold. Uh. Anyway, point is because she didn't feel the birth of the first child when she started having the contractions. She just thought it wasn't painful enough. As, fu as funny as that sounds, like, you know, women's heads are filled with, it's going to be, your body's going to be, like, it's like right. what we tell women is going to happen to their bodies is, is horrible. And it sets every woman up for being like, no, <laughs> I don't want this yeah. to happen, you know? So she thought it was going to be this, you know, root wrenching, you know, earth shattering pain, but because it wasn't. She thought she was having false labor. So wow. she was having contractions all day thinking this isn't the real thing. It's going to be more intense. It's going to be more intense. And then I was watching a movie in the front with our son, the one that's already alive. And she just kept having like, ah, and I'm like, are you okay? She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just need to go lay down. I need to go take a shower. And then there was a point where she made a sound. She was in the bedroom and I go in there and she's like, ah, and I'm like, is everything okay? Because we were like close to the day of the, you know, the due date and all that stuff too. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, I just need to go to the bathroom. And then her water broke. And she was like, oh no, I just peed. I'm like, no, you did not. Right. That's not pee. Your water broke. And she's like, oh, meanwhile, it's 5 p.m., you know, on a weekday. 
And so it's like, do we want to get in this car right now? Right. With the rush um, hour she's traffic. Like, I need to push. I need to actually push. Yeah. So next thing I know, she's on the bathroom floor on her hands and knees. Oh my gosh. On the website of the bir- of the oh birthing center, being like, All right, get some towels. And I'm yeah. like, towels on it, getting these towels on the ground. And she's like, wash your damn hands. And I'm like, washing the hands. <laughs> Getting my hands ready. Meanwhile, the older kid is like freaking out because his mom's making these sounds like, ah! and he goes, ah! he doesn't know what the hell's happening. He just knows that I'm kind of like, I went into a, I went into the freaking zone, luckily. You know, all this anxiety pays off. You know, some people call it anxiety. I call it rehearsal. Oh, I was I like, see. the moment I, I've been waiting for. I love it. Every, everything's going to shit. I'm ready for I it. I feel the same. Yeah, I feel the same way. So next thing I know, like, she's making all the guttural sounds. She's like, okay, check to see if there's a face. She's like, it feels good to push. It's 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 insane, but it feels really good to push. And I'm like, okay, cool. And I look, and the face is already coming out. I'm like, oh, wow. what? I'm telling you from her water breaking to a child in my bare hands. Oh, my God. 15 minutes. 15 minutes. And, are you, and, it, you, it took. and he didn't have the, you know, because when my second kid, when he came out, he had the uh, umbilical cord around his neck, which was very scary for the first few seconds. The doctor had to move very quickly. You, no, you didn't have any of those complications. No, I mean... When she started, kind of when her water broke, I immediately called the midwife who was on her way. I called our babysitter who was going to watch after the older kid while all these things happened. They didn't make it in time because it was five o'clock, you know. But after the child was born, in about 10 minutes after that, suddenly this group of qualified women, (laughs) you know, descend upon our place. Descended upon you. Yeah. Good job. We got it from here. And, you know, she was on her hands and knees. She was on all fours, which apparently is supposed to be the most natural way to give birth or squatting or something, right? Yep, that's right. So luckily, those complications didn't happen. He came out. She started holding him. It's like apparently you have this rush of like endorphins. So like women who have natural births, the moment they're holding a child, they don't even remember what it felt like. It's like out of their head. It's no longer like, man, that hurt. Whoa. Is it just me or am I open wide? Like, I mean, they're I not guess, saying that. Yeah, I guess that's kind of true. I mean, I remember her, Catherine, I remember still shaking, like her arms. and But I think that was from the epidural. I, uh, that's as, But I, I could be wrong about that. But I, I remember the first time her getting the epidural, she, that's when she started to shake with our first kid. And then the second time she couldn't stop shaking after the birth, which was scary. Both times, very, very kind of scary. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not exactly sure how the epidural works and all that stuff. As much as baby came, I put her, put the baby in her arms. She was fine. In about 10 minutes, everybody showed up and cleaned up the baby, cut the umbilical cord, did all the, did all the technical stuff, weighed the baby, all these things that, you know, we ended up having a home birth. It wasn't the plan at all. That's you know, beautiful. the first plan was to go to the birthing center. We ended up at the hospital. Second plan, birthing center ended up at home. And it was super cool. They came in, sweeped in, you know, did all the work and we're gone in like an hour. And it was just us hanging out. And it was like, whoa, yeah. we didn't need to go to a hospital. I mean, we had to have a nurse come over and do some other tests because there's certain technical things you have to have that the state demands you have. Ooh, but wait a minute. Will... Does that mean that you got out of you didn't have to pay for that hospital bed? No, we didn't. So that's no, so you you may have saved what is that like five grand? Well, we still we still paid for the whole midwife experience, sure, which is comparable. 
Oh, okay. So it, okay, got it. It, it costed the same in a lot of ways. America. Um, and so it's but but with the midwife, you get a little bit more you get a lot more individualized attention, you know, and a lot of a lot more knowledge that because a doctor is a doctor and they're just like, you shut up, I'll do the thing, uh, yeah. and then you're gone. And a midwife is like, here's what's gonna happen. Hold my hand. <laughs> you know, it's it's a calming, soothing sort of thing, uh, even though everything went sideways both times. Now, usually I get to feel some cover for my career not moving that fast these days. I often say that the kids put a dent in my hustle. Happily, I will add, but that does not seem to be an excuse for you. I feel like these days you have no less than three shows <laughs> going at once, right? You've got Grace and Frankie. You had have two Comedy Central shows? Had in past tense for both of those shows, yeah, definitely. For both of those shows? I didn't know that. Yeah, well... New Negroes, we did one season, and we're not doing another season at Comedy Central, um, which is fine. It is what it is. I'm happy okay. with what we created. Yeah. I'm so happy that uh, it's as simple as comedians that I like that did not have money in their pocket did my show and had money in their pocket. Yeah. Um, I had a comic I love tell me um, I paid rent this month because of you, and that yeah. is like the most nicest thing <laughs> that anyone – like just being able to to know you got rent that month, you know, when you are, uh, you know, when you are like a struggling comic is like it, 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 it's like being, you know, getting a pat on the back from God. So I was happy that I was able to provide people with that experience. It's yeah. TV exposure. Um, it was a great but, by the know, way, it was an it's an outstanding show. I appreciate that. There, um, there are other shows that have come after it, I feel like, that have that have been influenced uh, by it, like an Asian-centric show. I even worked on a show with a couple of friends that had a, a Middle Eastern sort of uh, centric vibe to getting, you know, Middle Eastern based uh, performers on stage. I, I'm curious, you know, you you and uh, Open Mike Eagle worked on that show for years before it went to television. And yeah. I have a couple questions, one being. You didn't take it to an established club, I don't think. I feel like you – am I right in saying that you designed it as a bar show? Is that correct? You mean the set of the TV show and all that stuff? No, no, no. I mean the idea when you came, when you created the show that you started. Yes. Why would well, why I mean, you take it to – The show The show started for the first, first time at a, a comedy festival in Portland. The Bridgetown Comedy Festival doesn't okay. exist anymore. But the incarnation that Mike and I did – we did. We started at the UCB, um, the one on Franklin here in Los Angeles, to quote unquote workshop it to kind of figure out what we wanted the show to be. And then once we started to kind of get a groove and a feel for that, we moved to the Virgil. Um, right. And by that time, we were already working on a TV show. You know, there's there's an argument to be made that we could have waited to do the TV show until we were a little bit more this and that and this blah, 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 blah. But I knew that we were on the the cusp of something. And I do think that there was a wave of shows that were the point of them being, you know, even when you're talking about um, a Middle Eastern centric or, or, you know, Southeast Asian centric show mm. is to, you know, break people's notions of what that might mean. Break people out uh, of the boxes. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so it's like the irony is that we have to, you know, make a quote unquote black show to sort of prove the point that there is no one way for black people to be. Right. Um, it's sort of, it's like, it, it's, it's a tricky thing because I think sometimes people go like, oh, it's all black people. Well, then I, I'm not black, so I shouldn't watch. And that's no, not the case. No. Yeah. No, there's but so it, much that I think you find that's universal. Do you agree? 
Oh, absolutely. And that's that's also the biggest thing is that, like, you know, no black person that went on the stage was going to say the same thing in the same way. They did. You know, even yeah. if they grew up in the same neighborhood, which that was true for some comics, they don't have the same things to say about right. that or the life they had or have, you know. So it's sort of like I look at it like everything's for everybody. Obviously, we were promoting black voices. And I think that you know, it's part of the trick of, of how marketing works. It's part of the education thing where we were, we're so obsessed with categories and stuff like that, right. where it's like, you know, it didn't easily be like, it's a black show for black people, you know, or it's a black show for white people. It's a show that's for anyone who wants to watch it that specifically features black perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's weird. It's hard to say that the black perspective is for everybody because people aren't used to that notion. Um, but that is the case, you know, so it's sort of like, and then the word Negro was really scary to Comedy Central because people don't know how to feel about that. Well, I was going to ask know. you about that. How many white executives at Comedy Central did you observe using that? Was it, were, were they using just- the word or you, just being afraid about the, the word? The name of the show, yeah. Well, I, I I chose the name of the show. There's a philosophy and a reason and a story about why that's the name. Right. So it- it didn't make me uncomfortable. I don't hear the word Negro and think it, think of it as an insult. You know, it's it's yeah. not a put down. Ultimately. This was a reference to a book from the from the Harlem Renaissance, correct? Absolutely. And and the the, the book was a collection of all these brand new voices uh, at the time, and they were all put into a collection with the purpose of breaking people's notions of what a black writer mm-hmm. or a black thinker is. So I was doing. My own version of that, except today with comedy, with the kind of an eye on the future. Yeah. Um, you know, there was an Afrofuturist feel to the, the the set and the wardrobe. I wanted it to be colorful. I wanted it to feel like its own world where these things were happening, um, which is what the new Negro, the original book was as well. So it's kind of like I'm standing on the shoulders of things that have come before me, whether that be in Living Color or Deaf Comedy Jam or, you know, the book, The New Negroes or the Harlem Renaissance or, you know, the civil rights movement, you know, and all the different art scenes that came out of that. Um, But it's like that's what I was trying to do. And I, I, I think that I was just a little ahead of the curve and behind the curve at the same time. Now, when you now uh, and in corporate. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Corporate, uh, which which I consider to be like the st- another stand up show. Like, I, I don't think that's an improv. It's not a room of improv writers. It felt to me like these are a bunch of stand ups who got a show. Yeah. Jake and Matt had a very specific sensibility. That's their own creation. You know, that's that's coming out of stand up, you know, and Pat Bishop as well. And Pat Bishop, who directed every episode and edited a lot of it, too. He you know, he comes from that background, too. So he kind of has a visual idea of how things could go. And they have mm-hmm. a very dark, twisted thing. And they cast a lot of stand ups, you know, a lot of friends that they just thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun to do this and that and this? And they 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 did. They, you know, they lived the dream where they got to make a thing and put a lot of their friends in it. Um, they made a last season last year at the end of last year called uh, third season. And it hasn't come out yet, but that's the end of corporate. Um, yeah. But uh that's fine. More power to those guys because I think they're going to make a lot of good stuff. Now, with UCB closing and their, they, they, you know, they just closed down their New York campus. Yeah. And uh, and perhaps some comedy clubs closing next. We were in this big comedy boom. What are your thoughts on what's going to happen maybe now and what might happen post this health crisis? Well, I think that. What's going to happen to the conversations that we were having about the culture? going for like 
not not that I you mean, would think, know necessarily, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, I think I think that like stuff like this is actually taking the place. Like this conversation, this podcast that we're doing right now, you know, is mm. is is sort of feel, filling the void of what you know the stand up comedy club or the theater, you know, or you know, an improv show or a sketch show could do. You know, everybody wants content. Everybody wants to. Wants something to make them laugh or make them think, you know, sometimes at the same time even. But, uh, you know, I, I think that, like, I am a beast of live performance. I, I can't picture when comedy clubs as we know it will come back. Uh, in the meantime, I think we're, you know, I guess I kind of have hope about, like, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So I just feel like people are coming up with all these different ways to get their voices out there and to make content. And you know, it's it's too early to say what's going to dominate and how and yeah. when, but I I think that uh, something interesting is going to happen, and I think that it's I think that everybody should think about the kinds of shit they want to make, you mm-hmm. know, right now and what they want to see, and what and you know what they want to share with the world, and figure out a way to make it happen. You know, it, it, I I think that like all the old models of how things are gone, you know, those are all. Comfort models, familiar. Right. Oh, but I can't go to a comedy club. I can't go to do... Well, yes, it's just the way it is. So it's up to us to figure out the ways to deal with it, and that's going to that's gonna ha- yield interesting results. And I think that we're at the first wave of, of what that's going to be, and I'm, I'm actually, for one, excited to see how it's all going uh, to happen and who's going who's gonna to drive... The entertainment industry from here on out it's 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 going to be fascinating and i hope that people continue to hire me while while it all changes uh did you ever audition for snl i almost auditioned for snl um i mean i did it wasn't i've only auditioned once most people who have been on snl auditioned more than one time and i guess in my brain i always thought secretly to myself that it would take more than one audition for me to make uh you know, make an impression. Um, I don't think emotionally, you know, a lot of stuff that happened in my twenties, like I look back now and I, I see how much of an emotional wreck I was in a lot of ways. Talented. Yes. But I didn't, I didn't have um, an awareness about myself to be able to um, believe that what I am doing um, is interesting um, or, worth someone else's time or you know like i didn't believe that people would see in me um the things i need them to see in me for me to work i don't feel that way anymore so when i auditioned for snl i was kind of in that place like i knew i was on my my way to something i didn't know what that was going to be i knew that um i knew a couple of people that had been on snl or were around snl and people make it sound very – some people have a great time and some people don't. I had conversations with people that didn't have the best time with that show. And I kind of had this this um, feeling that it wouldn't have been the best environment for me, at least not then, just because a high-stress environment where your worth is sort of tied to whether or not you get on uh, would have been devastating. I think I didn't have the emotional tools to be able to handle not being not being the star or not being mm. able to get everything I want, like not knowing how to fight for myself Interesting. Uh, and put myself out there like I do today. I don't think I knew how to do that then. Um, I didn't put together um, – I 
it kind of snuck up on me. I was told it was going to be a, I was like, you got three weeks to put something together. And then suddenly it was like, it's tomorrow. Yeah. That's kind of how it happens. Yeah. What you say? I think that, yeah, I think that's kind of how it happens. A a lot of times your reps are like, do you want to put a tape together? And you're like, okay. And they're like, do you want to do a writing packet? And you're like both at the same time. And they're like, yeah, it's due in three weeks. Yeah. And then suddenly it's the day is here. And I was like, that's why I think people get it on a second or third or fourth audition. Because if I would have tried out the, following year i would have all the stuff that i would have done would have been more polished and more practiced i probably wouldn't have even done it on shows to get it to a place where i think it's it's like the funniest most solid most interesting take on this thing that i'm going to do um it was it was sloppy to say the least um but it depends on i don't think i i I don't i think i got to a second stage where it's like the first group and then they whittle it down and then they whittle it down and then they whittle it down and then Lauren sees the tapes. So it's like, it's, yeah. it's sometimes I hear it's like five, six levels. So I, I think I got to the second level with the tape that I didn't even think was that good, which made me go like, well then next year, mm. maybe I can get further, but then decided not to, um, not to invest in it. I just, there was a part of me that's like, I don't know if it's the environment for me. I, and today I don't even know if that matters to think about. Back then, I just kind of was like, oh, it's going to be hard. And also, wah. So, Interesting. I, you know. Wow. I mean, you you're, 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 you can be such a demonstrative performer. I think, like, you would have absolutely killed on that show. And you don't feel at this point any regret about or, or, or not overwhelming regret. I mean, it, probably you were just busy working. Well, I think I just didn't know what I wanted. You know, like, in a lot of ways there's all these opportunities, especially when you're young in the game that, that look great, that sound great, that you see people do that results in X, Y, and Z kind of career. But when it comes down to it, it really is just about what you want. And I didn't know in a bigger sense, in a general sense, what I wanted or where I wanted to be. I was just kind of going along with what people were like, you know what you should do is be on SNL. But I actually wasn't sure if I wanted to be on SNL. Um, yeah. I wasn't sure if that was how to use that. You know, it was just kind of like, I want to be seen. I want to be out there as much as I had. But the ways that I wanted to present myself, the the, the places I wanted to go to present myself, I actually didn't know. I was just going wherever people um, accepted me, you know. And I don't know if that was fear-based or if that was just, you know, me not being very strategic. So Back then, like, I didn't know what I wanted SNL to even be, if that was going to be an opportunity for me, you know. Some people just know that they want it, and they know what it means, and they know that they can blah, blah, blah. I I didn't really have that kind of, like, um, you know, drive, motivation in me like I do today. Uh, back then, it was kind of like, well, it's, it sounds like it's really good. I just thought it's a good opportunity, and I'll rise to the challenge if, if it presents itself. But it wasn't, like, something I really – I didn't really, like – um, back then, like fight for certain things, you know, I was, I was too scared to really care just in case it didn't work out, mm, you know, in okay. kind of a way. Yeah. That, and you that don't want to feel that, that, thing. that sense of like, yeah, they're not, they're going to pass the, the, maybe the yes. worst, maybe the worst phrase in our business they're passing. Yeah. Um, you want to talk a little bit about your new show, the great debates, which is going to be on sure. sci- sci-fi wire, correct? Yes. I think it's just, I think it's, sci-fi channel yeah i am actually unclear about whether sci-fi wire is a different and channel si- than sci-fi. and sci-fi doesn't stand for science fiction anymore is that correct it just stands it's just sci-fi 
it it does. I mean, you know, that's what it's born of that, you know, yeah, but yeah. they just they were like, there's got to be a cuter way to make this look. And someone was like, why? And they're like, what do you mean, why? We want to make it look good. No, I'm saying the letter Y. <laughs> oh, Yvette, Yvonne, <laughs> Igor, get it all together. We've got to, okay. Oh, my God. So dumb. Um, good Lord. That made me laugh so hard, I think I'm having a stroke now. <laughs> Whoa, watch out. So it's about, um, this is nerd uh, knowledge. Is that right? Nerd yeah, knowledge I mean, it's, based. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a I'm gonna say glorified panel show. It is a panel show. It's a glorified game show. It's not really a game show. It's not really about who wins and loses. It's just a bunch of people who are fun and funny, talking about fun and funny things. You know, we just kind of get to hang out and you know be dressed in a way that we're comfortable, that's stylish, and talk about some pop culture stuff. You know, whether it be movies literature you know video games cosplay all kinds of you know just just silly topics to to riff on and, and to have fun with that's what the great debate is really about buddy thank you so much for doing this i am incredibly humbled by your generosity and your talent you've done me favors in the past uh, and i hope one day i can repay you if i get anywhere in this business but i wish you and your family safety prosperity and good health thanks man Oh, geez. Thanks. Back at you, JCD. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Love to the fam, man. Well, there you have it. My interview with Baron from back in May. A big thank you again to Baron for doing it. I hope you all enjoyed it. Before we move on to our second interview today, I'm going to take another opportunity to ask you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcast from today. We've got more incredible interviews with folks like Melissa Fumero, Chantel Tui, Ryder Doyle, Sarah Paxton, Christine Woods, Brandon Scott, Tembi Locke, and Vinny Chibber coming in the next few weeks. If you like what you hear so far, please give us those five-star ratings. Leave us a nice comment. We so appreciate all of the ratings, reviews, and kind words, and we want to keep bringing you these great episodes. Next up is Liz Glazer, a former tenured law professor turned fast-rising stand-up comic, a fellow podcaster, mystical fortune cookie fortune finder. We also talk about her panic-inducing bat mitzvah. It's a really fun chat. Here now is me talking with my friend, Liz. So now you're... You're going to be, you're in New Jersey now. You and I right. know each other uh, originally through our friend Jared Wilder, another comic. And yes. um, you and I had, for the last year and a half, we were running a, a comedy show here together in L.A. And, um, but it was in the cards that you were moving back to the East Coast because you are engaged. Correct? Are you, yeah, are you, you didn't true. get married yet, right? Well, we no, we're not like Jewishly married yet. Um, that'll be like on a Zoom at some right. point. Okay, you know whatever. But uh, yeah, so so I've been in a relationship with my girlfriend um, Karen uh, for we've been in a relationship for three years, and we knew even at the beginning of when I moved to LA, it was in my head that I would uh, come back to New Jersey, which is also where I'm from right. and where she lives. And so, yeah. So like I, I wanted to be in LA, but like 
you know, and I, I don't mean this with any bad things to say about LA, <laughs> Here it but goes. like, it was, you know, for me, it was just a place that I wanted to go to and come back. And I, I get yeah. the whole, like, you'll never leave LA thing, which a lot of people told me. And I was open to it being true, but like, I kind of knew that I was leaving just for my own personal reasons. Yeah. That's fucking yeah. fine. You no, know, not yeah. everybody has to live here. Sure. But it's also like I, you know, now traveling is less easy to do, but the idea has always been uh, in the same way that while I was living in LA, I came back and forth because Karen and I were together that whole time. So yeah. too, the idea was to do that in the reverse after moving back to the East Coast. But, you know, of course, now it's harder because travel is something that doesn't exist like right. everything else. Yeah. Right. right. You are uh, one of the hardest working standups that I know. You know, oh, thanks. Every month it felt like you were putting out no less than 20 upcoming stand-up dates. You were, as we said, you were splitting your time between L.A. and New York doing shows on both coasts. Um, yeah. So let's talk about this. I was talking with Baron Vaughn for this series, and yeah. uh, he remarked about how comics are going crazy without that immediate relationship with an audience. Sure. Are you going crazy right now? Are you stuck I mean, at home with this, with that yeah, void or lack I, of an audience connection? Right. I don't perceive myself to be going crazy, but I imagine that if I actually were going crazy, I don't know that I'd be the most reliable narrator of that fact. <laughs> right. So assuming, you know, those biases, uh, I guess I remain agnostic about my own mental state and whether it's dipped into some land that, that we'd call crazy. However... I understand the, you know, the idea that that standups feel a way about like not engaging as a standup comedian with an audience in the normal way. Um, I I don't feel that way, and maybe it's that I'm denying that I feel a certain way. All of that's possible. I remain a human with biases. However, um, I for a long time, first of all. It's true what I said earlier on this on this call, which is that like when I started doing stand up, it was about stand up, but it was also about freedom. It was about finding ways to play and to express myself and to sort of really be myself and be honest in a public medium in a way that even teaching, which provided a lot of freedom, like being an academic does, it didn't provide me you know, just literally, there's no boss, nobody cares, just figure out what your voice is and use it. Yeah. And, uh, and so that I think that because that was my entry point, it's maybe been more fine in um, quarantine, you know, but that's, that's sort of a, a kind of abstract answer in a very concrete way. Um, I have had footage I've I've had like basically maybe like a year after I left my job as a law professor I started being very convinced that I should record a lot of my life because I would have a show and I would use original footage in that show huh, and right. when I first started doing it you know sometimes it was kind of weird and like 
my family would be at brunch and I'd just be recording. And, you know, then that became normal. And I have a very funny family. And in quarantine, basically because I missed my family members, I started making mashup videos of my girlfriend, Karen, my brother, my mom. And then my father died unexpectedly. That's right. And so yeah. I, I also made made a video of my father. And I basically was able to do this because I had a lot of video footage from all these years. And again, you know, I believed all the while that I was taking the footage, that it was for something, but I wasn't sure exactly what it was for. And I think quarantine in this time, maybe also the passing of my dad, you know, all of it together has allowed me to kind of see into a way of using that footage to make content. Um, so I posted this a little bit ago, but I was doing like a virtual show and they were like, yeah, we're, we're pre-taping it, which not all virtual shows do. Some of them are Zoom and whatever, but this one, they said it was pre-taped. And so I was like, okay, well maybe I can make a project out of this. And so I made my set rather than just turning on the camera and doing a stand-up set in front of my phone, which I could have done. I took, I basically had like a whole thesis statement that I was like, okay, everybody says during, during quarantine that they miss live stand-up performance or a lot of stand-ups do. Um, but the reality is it's not always that great. And then I did this whole video about how like it's, it's a mashup clip of me bombing. And then, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, I saw, I don't think I've yeah. seen it all the way through, but I did, I think I've seen sure. the post. Yeah. I got to go yeah. back and take a look. Yeah. I mean, no crash, but like basically, and then I, I incorporated some old clips from my bat mitzvah with the idea of like, I've actually been bombing longer than I've been doing stand up because there's a part about how I bombed my bat mitzvah speech. So anyway, all of this to say that like, I've tried to use the time inside to a, sort of realize this dream that I've had for a while, but I didn't know exactly what it was with like doing all this, you know, having all this footage and be like really doing stand up, but in this different way, whereas it's still like a present me straight to camera sort of story, but it's me narrating clips from earlier in my life. And so uh, I've been doing a lot of that work in quarantine. So I guess I don't miss regular stand-up as much because I'm very aware that it'd be hard to do the type of schedule that I had and sit in front of my computer editing as much as I've been doing. Well, you know, first of all, condolences to you about oh, the passing of your you. dad. And um, you did put some footage of, of him on on your yeah. profile. And uh, he just seemed like such a lovely man and a larger-than-life character. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Thanks. Yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting is Baron had said something when we were talking about this subject. He said that, you know, and I was sort of saying, you know, where do you think things are going to go? And, yeah. um, you know, he sort of said, like, well, things are going to like become the new. He said, you know, things like this recording podcasts and stuff. Mm hmm. Uh, but I think what you're talking about is a really interesting place for, um, for that this kind of storytelling that we enjoy doing this kind of much of it is direct address mm -hmm. and that it could could 
turn into something uh, in the sort of format that you're creating, I think that's an interesting place for it to go without question. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah. It's fun for me. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, and you're very good at it. And I think that, um, and it's, and it's, um, just trying to think in terms of like what we do with stand up with that direct address. It's sort of, and I was saying this to Baron too. It's like, I told him like, you're getting up in front of people and you're letting the, the whole world judge you. Mm-hmm. Um, in your case, I liked what you said about like finding your voice and do and, sh- and sharing it publicly. Yeah. Trying. Yeah. Um, now it just was uh, pride month. And in terms of, being um public and mm-hmm. it feels like something that is celebrated historically outside you know wh- were you able to did you participate or how, how how what was your participation in in pride month uh this year a very strange year also sure. on the on the the heels of ongoing demonstrations for black lives yeah. matter and yeah um and you're about to get you 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 are planning to get married. Uh, mm-hmm. What were uh, were there any interesting takeaways from this 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 year? I mean, I I am not always a huge pride person. I'm not a big parade person. I'm also in the suburbs now, so you know, other than donating and reading, I haven't been like out in an, in a city, you know, so for pride or for anything else. Um, and so in that sense, that's what I haven't done. Um, and then in terms of, I mean, you know, I did like some pride shows, I continued being gay, but like (laughs) other, other than that, I don't know that that I did a lot um, for that. Yeah. Um, so you are engaged to to Karen is a is a rabbi. It's true. And I you know that is it's almost sounds a little bit like an old fashioned setup to a joke. I know. Um that you're getting married to a rabbi. Uh what is that like marrying a rabbi? Is there is there like a is there ever like a a holier than thou dynamic or a closer to god sort of dynamic going on in a relationship like that? That is well, that is a struggle or yeah, I mean, not for us, because I think my own narcissism takes care of that uh, in insofar as, like, I don't know, like, I, I've i always, I have a joke about um, my own relationship to God and religion that, like, I don't know exactly what my religious beliefs are. I just think that I'm special enough that God would talk directly to me, and that usually sets up you know, stories about the fortunes that I've found. And I've found, I think we're up to 87. So, you know, not nothing. And um, I, I mean, with, with, I'm, I'm, I don't mean like the narcissism as a literal thing. Um, I feel like, you know, it's a tough thing to say with like Trump and stuff like that. So I once, I had a, a, uh, an ex-girlfriend who was a therapist who, when we broke up was like, you're a narcissist. And then I went to my therapist and I'm like, am I a narcissist? And she's like, my therapist is like, well, not pathological. Uh (laughs) 
So I'm like, okay. But I feel like I like to... I like to just explore, I'm ultimately trying to explore like the truest answer to everything. So that's why I just say, you know, I don't think that, that one of us between me and Karen is like holier. Um, but I've always had a really strong religious belief. And so, you know, when I met a rabbi, I mean, I knew I was going to marry her because I'm just like, I, I don't mean that literally you know, obviously we got along, I was attracted to her, there were like other kind of normal relationship moments. But for me, that was a big deal, because I always had such respect for God. And so if I'm like introduced to a rabbi, I'm like, God set me up, you know. <laughs> and so, right. so yeah. it's like, of course, it has to happen. Um, and then in terms of like being engaged to a rabbi, marrying a rabbi, you know, you're, you are really marrying like an entire congregation. And so I feel like I'm in a polyamorous right. relationship with, you know, 1200 families. Oh my gosh. Um, That's her congregation. That is her flock is 1200 families. Yeah, I think that's true. Holy moly. Yeah. I mean, she's not the only rabbi. It's like, you know, they have other rabbis, um, but yeah. Can I ask you? Can I ask you this? Yeah. Uh, do you go to temple? Re yeah. Regularly? Well, now I don't go anywhere. Right. Right. I mean, there's temple on Zoom and stuff, and you know, Karen's like on. It's like an all-day temple telethon every oh single day on Zoom. Um. So yeah, but I, I grew up. I went to you know Jewish day school from first through twelfth grade, and yeah. Like I, I, I know temple. I mean, I grew up Catholic, um, yeah. but I was an altar boy. Um, but, uh, I mean, I don't go to church anymore. No. Right. No, no, yeah. no. The Catholic church is the America of religions. Sure. And <laughs> America is the Catholic church of countries. Right. Um, I remember when I was a, a kid, there was I, I remember realizing at one point that you could ask to use the bathroom. I'd never thought of that before, yeah. that there yeah. must be a bathroom on on the premises. And I turned to my mom and said, can I go to the bathroom? And she said, because she, what was most frustrating about church is the false endings. OK, where you, they get to the end and you're like this. Oh, here we go. It's you know, you're looking at the yeah. your Mickey Mouse watch and it's like 55 minutes. And you're like, come on, man. You know, let's get right. out of here. And they're doing the announcements. See, they'll end it, but then they do the announcements of like what kind of donuts are in the parking lot or whatever. So, yeah, I yeah. realized once like, oh, I could ask to use the bathroom. And so I got away with it. And my mom said, yeah, go ahead. So I walked down the, and I knew there was about because I was an altar boy at that point. Yeah. So I went down the stairs on the side of the church. And then I was just downstairs with a bunch of church rooms. Uh huh. And when you're 11 or whatever, or, nah, I think I was like younger, eight, nine you realize yeah. like, you're, when you're in like a bunch of church rooms, when you're like nine, you're like, cool, like weird. There are rooms here, yeah. you know, religious <laughs> rooms. And like, so I just remember like, I went through a bunch of cupboards. I found like in one cabinet, there was like an industrial size bag of the Jesus wafers. That's not a good look. Huh. That kind of ruins the magic right. a little bit. Um, and then a woman popped her head in and I, I, a woman I swear I've never seen before in my entire life. And she was like, hi, Claude. And I froze. Uh -huh. And she said, you know what? We need someone to do the Stations of the Cross 
um, next week, would you be able to do it? And I, so I got suckered into doing the Stations of the Cross. Now, if you don't know, the, if you know the Stations of the Cross, there have been some movies made about this. Okay. The, what this involved was getting up at like 6 a.m. in the morning before school start started. Yeah. You walk uh-huh. the different stations uh, that are each a step in the story of Christ being crucified. Okay. Pretty dour. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I had to do that for an entire week before going to first grade, second grade, or whatever. So that was a, um, it came back to bite me. My, sure, and you my... never went to the bathroom at church again. No. As soon as I could stop going to church, I did. But I, I did get my, sure. what's called a confirmation, which is, uh, you right. do it, you're like, it's. I, I think it's like sort of the Catholic response to a bar mitzvah or a bat, bat mitzvah. Yeah. So you said you right. bo- you said you bombed your bat mitzvah. Well, yeah. I mean, there was a speech. I was nervous for the entire party. It was like a very uncomfortable experience for me. Um, I guess like I don't know. I have a, a few stories like this where it's like I want to be the center of attention. It's more from when I was a kid. But then it's like, once I am the center of attention, it's like very scary for me. Like my first memory actually is me on stage. I had a ballet recital when I was four years old and I was in ballet class for one reason, which was that there was Haagen-Dazs in the same building as the ballet studio. (laughs) And every time I went to get to to ballet class, my mom let me get Haagen-Dazs. I did not know there was going to be a recital. So first of all, I was really upset about that. Secondly, when I learned that there would be a recital, I was like, okay, what are we going to do? And then I, I had like two stages of the nervousness for that. Stage one was, I don't know what I'm doing. All I've been doing, I mean, unless we're going to be on stage, like looking forward to ice cream, I don't know how to do this class on stage. And then the second level of the nervousness was once I learned what we were going to be doing, I was like, that's not a show. Like, who wants to see this? Because what we had to do was just hold the hands of the little girl to our right and left and go in two circles of just little four-year-old girls and walk around in a circle. And I was like, my grandparents came, like they survived the Holocaust. They're coming here. Like, this is an awful performance (sighs) and it's just going to suck. And so rather than just do it, I stood in the middle of both circles and bawled my eyes out on stage. And so I have this, like that memory and also my bat mitzvah of like, okay, I guess I'm in the center, but I'm like not going to be overtly happy to be here kind of thing. And so at my bat mitzvah was sort of a similar vibe where like at a party like that, like similar to like a sweet 16, they have like these hype people and they say your name a lot. And like, I, I think you're supposed to react to your name being said as like, woo, it's my bat mitzvah or something to that effect. And I, like anytime the DJ, MC, whoever would say my name, it was like my mother was saying my name for me to clean my room. You know, so it's just like, Elizabeth, I'm like, what? And so (laughs) it was really upsetting to me. And obviously I have all the video footage, not because I was taking it, but because we had you know, like my parents, like got oh, a yeah, video. Yeah, videographer. That was, yeah. yeah, I've been to a, a I've been to a couple yeah. of bar mitzvahs. Yeah, right. So, and and the speech part was like really bad because I went to school. I went to Orthodox Jewish Day School, which is like sort of a level ahead of where we were. 
in my parents specific like level of Judaism okay. observation. Yeah. But that was, was what was a, that that was what was close. No, that was what was I think most impressive. Like oh, in some ways okay. like it was an education in everything that we were doing wrong at home. Like I think mm. and and that was puzzling for me at first, but then I started thinking about it. I'm like, "Oh, it's like the most Jewish reason for sending your kids to a school, which is like our kids will know more about Judaism than anyone at our temple. Mm. And so it was like, it was like, I don't know, whatever, but that's not exactly why they did it. My parents are both children of Holocaust survivors. And I think they wanted, you know, us, me and my brother to have like a really solidified understanding of our heritage. And in their mind, that would come from this Orthodox Jewish day school, whatever. It was a good experience for me. And I'm very grateful for it. But um, when it came time to do the bat mitzvah speech, there was this assumption from school, I guess, that like since everyone else's parents were kind of like knowledgeable about Judaism, there wasn't any formal like assistance with writing your speech. It was just kind of this thing where it's like, okay, there's a portion of the Torah that's read on the weekend of your bat mitzvah. You'll find some books, you'll look it up, you'll say something about that portion. And we had one book in my house, in my parents' library, about the the portion of the Torah. And it was like, it had one little page for that portion. And I did the thing, I don't know if you relate to this, but like, I did the thing where it's like, I wasn't sure if I was or wasn't plagiarizing, because I was like, looking at the you know, the little article about my bat mitzvah portion. And I was like, I don't know if I could say it any better than this, you know, like sort of doing the thing where I have a thesaurus by my side. And I'm like, I guess I'll say utter instead of said, or like comprehend instead of understand. And so when it came time to deliver the speech, I felt so ashamed because I knew it was not my words. And so like, what's funny about the video is like, I I started to notice this and in in the video that I made, I sped up the portion of the video and did like a voiceover because the videographer of my bat mitzvah during the speech, because I was bombing so much, just played with the zoom function on the lens, like, a lot of times during my speech because he's just like, this is not usable, Um, you know, until she quits her job and, you know, 30 years becomes a stand-up comedian and decides during a pandemic and quarantine that she's going to make a video mashup of this. I'll give her that. So good for that. Nice of him to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Amazing. So I do want to get back to something that you did mention uh, briefly. You do have this recurring bit in your standup that involves a real life magical story about finding fortunes uh, Mm -hmm. from fortune cookies. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned you found 87 now. Is that what you said? Can you explain what's going on here? And have you found any fortunes during the pandemic? And if so... Sure. Were they helpful? Is there, is there some <laughs> advice? I mean, they're they're always helpful because I, I mean, I've even when there weren't as many, I've attributed magic to them because they do feel like they're intended just for me. And again, maybe that's just my own self importance, but it's also like at some point, you know, I recognize, of course, there's a bias that like now I'm thinking of them. So therefore I see them like a red car and then we see red cars, whatever. I, I get it. 
And I think the, the reason it, I really love it that it's happening to me, other than that it's magical, is that I love like magic and whimsy and wonder, but I'm also a lawyer. And so I love the data. I, I got the spreadsheet. I know, you know, where I found every single one and I'm like obsessive about documenting it, et cetera. And so it does present this interesting collide for me between sort of, I don't know if it's the two sides of my brain or two aspects of the self or whatever it is, where it's kind of like, I want to see the evidence and I want to be skeptical about the fact that this could be as magical as it is. And so that's why I'm like, I always have, you know, the sort of like, here's what I'll say to the other side, right? As though I'm defending this in court, but either way, the evidence is what it is, right? The data are there and I've found this many of them, yeah. whatever one's explanation could be. I mean, it's the level of skepticism and pushback I've gotten. I mean, there's plenty of people who are interested in it and find it fun and, and exciting in the way that I do. But there's also like, I, I've been walking with another stand-up comedian and stand-up comedians can be very cynical. And I'm telling her about the fact that this happens to me, being excited about it. And she's like, oh, please. And we're friends. And then while I'm talking to her, I find you another find one. one. Yeah. And I'm, it's right here. And she's like, okay, fine. And, and she's okay, never, fine. Like, Fuck yeah. that. She should be doing a, a, so, a flip. That's crazy. Right. Right. And so, so um, I think that one from that story was uh, something about like courage is knowing what not to fear. I'm pretty sure it definitely has to do with courage and fear. And sometimes I, I'm not like the best at That's you know a knowing a hundred percent of exactly what they say by heart, but to answer your question, pandemic. Yes. I found, I believe three legit fortunes. And when I say legit fortunes, what I mean is, you know, things that are clearly fortunes from fortune cookies that are on the ground. I've also found ones that are like, there was a rock that said, make a wish that I saw on a walk somewhere. There was a receipt that said, keep crushing it because that was, you know, whatever. So, so just for the objectors in the house, I just want to say, I do note those examples, but they do not count in the official count of fortune. Good for you. Um, right. So uh, the ones that, the, the one that like I found right before the pandemic hit, was an interesting one. And I'm just going to cheat a little. God has given you one face and you make yourselves another. That was found okay. the day before, like everything locked down. Wow. And it was before everybody was wearing masks. That's the, the meaning that I attribute to it is God gives you one face and you make yourselves another is like, to me, just, you know, that. I don't know. I thought it had to do with masks at the beginning and now we're all wearing masks. Oh Again, my God. Wow. I didn't even thing, think, I didn't even think about that. I'm so bad with like under like, um, well, they're, they're almost intentionally cryptic yeah, and decoding fun in that decoding way them, yeah. because it could mean whatever. Um, I have found more beyond that, but I, I don't remember them by heart. It's incredible. Um, oh, now you also have a podcast of your own. I do. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's called the Finding 40 podcast. Can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that? Sure. Um, so I, I am 40. I'll be 41, hopefully in August. And what I noticed oh, was, boy. especially in Hollywood, 
that there was, and maybe especially among women, there was this, you know, like lying about your age, people don't want to get older, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I just haven't had that hit me ever. Like I still like birthdays. I don't mind getting older. And it's not like I don't feel the effects of aging, but I also am just like, but it's still exciting and I still know more than I used to. And so anyway, so I just decided to lean into that and start a podcast about it, but it's, it's cool. I mean, we have, um, we've got like some really great guests. Uh, he's actually not 40, but, um, he's 39 at the time of the recording. Um, but I interviewed Eddie K Thomas, who's, uh, Finch from American oh, yeah. Pie. Right. Um, or sorry. Yeah. That, that is his name. Yeah. Shipbreak. And so right. he's a friend of mine and, and we met in a fun, interesting way. Um, and you know, he's the youngest guest, but I, I was like, you're close enough and we'll disclose the fact that you're 39. But I was really excited about interviewing him and that's the season finale of season one. We've oh, also great. interviewed like a lot of really awesome people. And where, so where can people find that? anywhere like anywhere you find podcasts yeah and i also it's... interviewed my mom um oh a how, how very very famous person mm-hmm. did that go great good oh yeah yeah it was really our fun. parents yeah. are a mystery aren't they yeah every parent is a mystery that's why i'm a dad now and i'm gonna i'm just trying to i'm keeping a, a couple of doors closed up in my up in my sure. my head and my heart just to <laughs> just to keep them guessing i just right. don't want i just i just don't want them to find out that i'm dumb that's all you know, so I wanted to ask you about being in your now that you're in your 40s. How is it so far? Is it better than your 30s? Because I got to tell you, I was promised yeah. a lot about my 30s, I feel like. Sure. And I'm a little disappointed about yeah. how it was I mean, advertised. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, Claude. Um, and I, <laughs> I do hope that did. Were your they, 30s good? Sure. Like, I, you know, that's a thing I think, like, that people say and that I've heard about, you know, from studying this again, it's not a hundred percent like a scientific study or anything like that. Mostly what I've noticed is people, um, people talk about becoming more self-aware and starting to care less about what other people think. Honestly, I don't know that that tracks for me. Like, tell me what time of day we're talking about. Tell me how many likes my last tweet got that's more important to those variables than age. Hmm. You know what I mean? But I do get it. And I also, you know, I, I have like a habit, good or bad, of like obsessively documenting my own life. And so for me to sign on to my 30s were good, my 40s are better, it takes a lot. Like there's a there's a lot in that proposition and I'm going to have a long answer to it. Yeah. So Okay. You know, I don't know. I mean, well, I like what you said about the it's your that's I think exactly like that touches on something I that resonates with me is the self-aware part. I think that that I I feel like I've gotten a fair amount of that in my 30s and uh it's just hard work. I think that's what it is. Yeah. You know, cuz I think totally. that you're, you you I think what you get sold or advertised. I was talking to our our other guest um Sarah Paxton about this is that like <laughs> you know you sort of advertise that like the the knowing yourself better part sure but with that <laughs> comes the self-awareness and there is therein lies some work so i hope um i think just basically once i'm in my 40s i just hope i like myself i think that's would be yeah i mean right and i think it's like it's a function of you know i think it's different for everybody and like for me I don't know. I spent a lot of my like twenties, early thirties being convinced 
that like the track I was on was the right one. And it's like, I don't know. Now I guess it's a little bit less that maybe, I don't know. I've just like, I've had more therapy. I've meditated more minutes. I've, you know, quit more jobs, um, whatever it is. But it's like, there's always an opportunity, at least for me to feel insecure, to wonder if somebody hates me, you know, like, <laughs> right. did I Plenty do something that somebody's mad at me? You know, those are things that I still think about. And like, maybe I care less, but that seems like a pretty big thing for me to be sure about. I guess yeah. I'm more comfortable being less sure. Okay. I, I think that, I think yeah. that's a good outlook. Yeah. All right. So finally, so where can people find you? You're, you're sure. on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm at Liz Glazer on Instagram. I'm at Elizabeth Glazer on Twitter. My website is dearlizglazer.com. Liz with a Z, Glazer with a Z, dearlizglazer.com. And throughout quarantine, I do plan on putting stuff on the website for people to be able to download and that kind of thing um, with my footage, kind of like a mix between self-help and comedy. Um, so hopefully, you know, there will be people who might be into that. That's great. Well, Liz, I hope we get to do some comedy right. together on an actual stage again soon. Um, I miss you. I miss you too. This is, and I love you. This is, I love you too. This is great for now. Um, you're one of my yeah. favorite people. You're so talented. Thank, thank you. you so much for doing this. Congratulations again on your engagement. Oh, thank you. I wish you and your family safety and good health. And I'm I excited to see what comes next for you in comedy, acting. I want to see, I'm excited for that TV show that I, I know is going to happen. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, hopefully you could be a part of it. Hey, now. I wouldn't say yeah. no to that. <laughs> um, oh, all right. Well, be safe in, in New Jersey. Yeah. I hope you enjoy L.A. Dum, 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 dum. To everyone out there, if you listened all the way to the end of this third episode, I want to say thanks for listening. Give us a subscribe and those sweet high star ratings, a nice comment, and we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality content in the future. Stay tuned because we've got seven more incredible episodes, including interviews with Melissa Fumero, Chantel Tui, Ryder Doyle, Sarah Paxton, Brandon Scott, Christine Woods, Tembi Locke, and Vinny Chibber, to name more than a few. Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontiero, and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our series graphics editor is Dan Olszewski. For you truly thorough listeners, I'll reward you today with a secret. I ate a full tablespoon of Nutella last night. No. Not as a topping, just pure European hazelnut chocolate spread. <laughs> I think the pupils in my eye is fully dilated. It's embarrassing. Please don't tell anyone. See you next time.